Welcome back, everybody. It's easier said. And uh, we're here today. We've got myself, and, uh, which is a good thing to have. You've got yourself. Yeah. What else do you need? Uh, I'm Clayton. We've got Adam and Brandon. And we've got uh, at least part of Nathan. And uh, so <laughs> we, are, we are here today um, going to bring you a conversation about the structure of narrative and how do you make it great? How do you work it out? There are lots of different ways to approach this, I think, and um, some come to mind more than others, but I think as far as talking about devices in which you really weed out the unnecessary, um, this, this would be a good conversation. I think, first of all, a con something I want to bring up first is that there has been a development in the, the uh, hashtag trash Narnia uh, situation here on the show. We have revisited the movie. And I think that between me and Adam, we have leveled off a little bit. Yeah. I came out liking it more, and you... I came out liking it less, or at least less than I did when I was little. It's still, it's still magical, but that is yeah. we all realize magic tricks got a thing to them. Yeah. So. To clarify, this is Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, other things, I haven't seen the other ones, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, I still think that the best that can be said is... Well, I mean, not the best that can be said. It is a decent movie. I think that it needs to be summed up as it really could have used another rewrite. And, uh... Yeah. Yeah. Just once over more. Yeah. Well, we what about just, the games? I haven't played oh, games. those Those games are just... They exist for the memes. The reason... <laughs> just to step on this tangent for a little bit, mm -hmm. I, we, we all feel like if they could just rewrite the Aslan seems to be more impactful, yeah. they yes. could do a lot. Yeah, yeah. So cut we, out Father Christmas. Yeah, cut out the Father Christmas. Would you say that impacts the structure negatively? He's not, he's not there for that long. It's kind he's of, not there for that long, but it's sort of like it's it not a Tom Bombadil moment. All right, yeah, that, just that, we, that is horrible. It, his wife Goldberry or whatever her name is like. I what think actually was the point of him? <laughs> he Tolkien wrote the character first and didn't want to cut him out because he's in a, he's in like a short story, right? Like the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Yep. Or so with all that. I think it just was a matter of everything needs to be there that is there. That's the that's the thing to try to cut out the slack, and I feel like you could have had something, because things I think get set up in that movie that don't really get paid off, and things get paid off that didn't get set up quite as well as they Indeed, could have yeah. been, and so that yeah. becomes a good touchstone for the whole conversation that we're about to have, yeah. um, in the topic of narrative structure. So what mechanisms? help to order a film in a way that uh, keeps it going, brings it all together. Um, Alright, so can we start with the characters in the film? Like, what sort of like sure. having like the different like, you know, dynamic and flat characters, but what makes it good would be the mixture of dynamic and flat characters to make the story go on mm -hmm. and like to tell it in a better way. Um, um, would you say that the primary thing that uh, the difference being, as far as the structure itself, as far as the narrative, would be the ways in which that they have an arc. Yeah. 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 Definitely, and I, I think of so a lot of that goes to what, what we what we were talking about with uh, the Narnia movies in our private conversation. Yeah. Was that a lot of it comes down to framing? Yes. Because yes. an example in Lord of the Rings is that we are introduced, at least in the movies, to Aragorn as this unsure character that must overcome his weakness. And that is complemented by shots of him grabbing a sword in defense of Frodo when even Boromir would step in the way and all that different stuff. Mm -hmm. yep. That is repeated to the point where, and we, we give excellent facial expressions with the acting, yep. and that helps build on what is narratively in the story. It's, it's, it's so very good about, you know, 
showing and not telling. Mm-hmm. But we yes. are kind of told at the end. You know? Well, it's yeah, one yeah. Of those things. You can do both. Well, yeah, nothing's wrong. In the book, you're sort of told too. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that is kind of the fairy tale thing, is that you're told more than shown yes. in a way. I which like is do, interesting. I feel like they do that in a lot of movies. Because they want you to be told well, like, I mean, sort of what to expect to an extent. Because narration can be a tool of the narrative more yeah. than it is just a, well, you know, an easy out for does it, conversation. Does it ever really throw you off when it starts with narration and then it ends with narration, but there's, like, no narration sort of in the middle of it? Like, yeah. it's... So, like, I guess a good example of what did it properly is in The Princess Bride, the grandfather's yeah. reading him the thing. So that narration's actually relatively well done where it's the grandson in bed sick mm-hmm. wanting to hear a story and then it ends with the grandfather finishing the story. Yeah. I, I get that. To me, that makes the story feel less real. Whereas mm-hmm. we can agree that, you know, stories begin with like a narrative, like a yeah. narration. And them ending with them, I feel like you could just end the story. I don't feel like having an end narrative Unless it's like really compelling, adds a whole lot. Yeah, you know so like that's you, why because Lord of the Rings starts with beginning narration. Star Wars starts with beginning narration via the text. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, I think yeah. with the Princess Bride, right? I think if they cut out the ending of it, yeah, it would make it a little bit. I like the Princess Bride as a movie. I just yeah. think if they cut off the ending part, or that would make it better. Or they don't do the introduction because it's. You're getting introduced into the story of this is what's happened, this is the people in it. But they can tell that without the narration at the beginning. Yeah. The Big Lebowski with Sam Elliott. That was a good movie. Sam Elliott in there, being the narrator dude, at the beginning of it. Dude, the dude. Yeah. Go bowling. That's all I learned from that movie was literally That's just go bowling. <laughs> well, I mean, that is the sort of thing that you would pick up on with your bowling yeah. love. Yeah. Uh-oh. But uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's, um... I don't know that it's my favorite of the Coen brothers because Oh Brother Where Art Thou is the highest. That's pretty good. Time. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> Just a fantastic movie uh, all around, and uh, you can't go wrong with that. So going back to structure, what elements do you like to see that are we mentioned of things being um, more or less delivered on? Yeah, that are, that are already placed in the story. What sort of things, examples, could you think of with that? Um, okay, so. Here in a little while, whenever we have our episode on Christian movies, and when I make the case that, oh, brother, where art thou is a Christian movie. Oh. <laughs> um, listen, right? So I think that what pays off fantastically in, oh, brother, where art thou is that we start out the, with the baptism of his uh, goofy uh, friends. You Delmar. Know, and Delmar and the other guy. The other guy, yeah. John Turturro. <laughs> Delmar has been saved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so they, they start out early on anyway with the baptism of those guys. And the climax, spoiler alert, is as they are about to be killed, even though they've been pardoned, um, they are about to be, be hung for, for the crimes that they have committed. They, you know, um, the cynical character, um, Everett, falls yeah. upon his knees and prays out to God. And they so are they, saved by, by water. water. Yes, there is some symbolism. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, they are saved by water. I just thought of something that might be interesting to bring up with um, structure. Okay. So, have you seen Cult Fiction? I have not. Yes. It jumps around. How do you think that I, I do know pretty much all of that. Well, yeah. with everything pulp, it's, it's not really connected it. by anything. Well, that's not. I, the point of it is not to be like a well structured thing, it's supposed yeah. to be like. 
I'd almost say vignettes. Yeah. Yeah. And my understanding is because each one kind of, well, in in different ways, kind of like sheds lights on the other ones, right? Sort of. Like, there's like, it's like interspersed, some of them. Yeah. um, I think the first one and the last one are the same one, but it just keeps going on past a point. Yeah. And then there's, there's some parts I don't remember that well. Um, but it's yeah. just a roller coaster. I know, right? I am the nonlinear storytelling guy, and I haven't seen the archetypal nonlinear <laughs> story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, that is a tasty bug. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that ultimately, what what? Okay, as you you also you had asked me about great payoffs, mm-hmm. and I can't give much away about. The movie Knives Out because that would ruin it. That's a good movie. Really? Have you seen it? Yeah. That's yeah, a fantastic movie. I yeah. think it's one of the greatest of our time. Yeah, because it's the one with the southern guy that's Yeah, Daniel Craig. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. Wait, isn't that James Bond? Yes, he's the he's James Bond and he plays Benoit Blanc yeah. in that movie. It's a good yeah. movie. It's a great movie. I've listened to it twice. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I have too. Well, I've watched it too. Ugh. But anyway. I, I don't get that luxury. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, uh, so I, it, you know, as uh, like you know, just watching you know something like Studio Binder, that channel, talk about Chekhov's gum, gun, <laughs> Chekhov's gum. Uh, if there's gum in the scene, somebody has to chew it by the end uh, of the movie. That's the point. That's the real point. Th- that's an example of these these different parts. There's a lot of moving parts in that movie, and as you see them as they come together, it just all crystallizes. And then there's even a twist ending. Outside of all of the it coming yep. twist to in together and yep. uh, surprises you about that as well. There's just a whole lot of stuff going on, and it it absolutely beautifully comes together like like clockwork. Like a, I think it's the proper roller coaster ride. Everything sinks into place. And uh, Ryan Johnson, you know, had mentioned that he wanted to make it into a basically a, a, a ride as opposed to like something where you're actively trying to piece it all together and so yourself it, yeah as it kind of comes yeah. together that's part of the sensation part of the beauty of it yeah, yeah because it's a movie yeah you know you're you're very passive in a movie that is true you know that i think that's the ideal yeah you're being told a story shown yeah. a story i think that's why i like video games more because you're actively participating yeah in and there are some too. narrative things that can happen with that especially with choices but yeah. to keep on the structure yeah part, sorry when it comes to things, and I go to Lord of the Rings because it's my go-to with pretty sure. much everything. Bad Star Wars. Yeah, because <laughs> well, things are clear. Because Lord of the Rings has such a clear goal, it can build up things and establish them very easily, and even have these miniature arcs. Yeah. Like Boromir's redemption arc in the first movie, we're introduced to Boromir like halfway through the movie, but within that, throughout the entirety of the second act to the end of the third, we're given like this miniature arc where we show good elements and bad elements, him failing, but then him redeeming himself and winding up dying. And we are shown that he does indeed love his country and his concern, that's also his weakness, and that's built and delivered on very well by the time we get to the third act. Mm -hmm. And just things like that, like Brandon, you said with characters, as well as, now I do think there are ways that are just too preachy. Yep. Like, you watch the extended edition of Lord of the Rings, which I've never seen, actually. I have heard some of it. Yes. For Return of the King, they see a scene that's in the books. They see this statue that has, like, a wreath on it, and their light shines through it, and they say, look, the king has his crown again. As if this entire book has not already been building to the fact yeah, that Aragorn is going to be the king. Yeah, I thought the statue didn't have its head. Or something like that. Yeah, because but, but it was something like the light shined on it, and Sam, yeah. looked, Sam said something like, look, the king has his crown again. 
Wow. Wow, it's not like he made 500 references before this. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it's like, yeah. obviously he has a sword that's the king's sword that needs to be reforged. Yeah. I, Overdoing it is just as tiring as... I feel like that's. Yeah. I feel like that's another good a thing that you could interpret upon Chekhov's gun. You, yeah, the gun just has to go off. It doesn't have to yeah. be talked about it after be, it's gone yeah. off. It's, it's it like, doesn't have to go off and become like a fully automatic. <laughs> just keep going <laughs> off. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that that's. I think that's good. Um, and uh, I think as well that you within any film, and this has mostly to do with thematics. But there's often a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis going on. And, uh, you know, I'm not that much of a Hegelian, but uh, I think that's a... Or a Marxist, but who that, knows? I mean, maybe we are, maybe we aren't. I mean, Find out next time. <laughs> In the after <laughs> show. <laughs> Please go to our... Um... Of our Patreon. Listen, we'll find out everything. I can't be a dialectical materialist. I have to have the world spirit driving me, and uh, the world spirit obviously was riding horseback in the person of Napoleon, and that was that was a glorious, triumphant day. Anyway, um, all that all that being considered, thematically, you you almost never have a character that starts out really with the right or correct mindset. You know, it's like I'm super eager to do this thing. There's always that internal struggle, that internal difficulty. And uh, so that moves along, and so does the, the story as they become more submissive to the story's plot. Um, and what do you think about the three-act structure as far as it pertains to this moving along the story? Well, I, there's a reason why it's enduring, clearly. Right. Because it allows us to... Well, it's just, I, I think it just builds well in every, in every potential scenario. Because we have the, we have the climax, we have this, we have that, we have everything you need in a basic children's literature class, and that's it's simple. People want simple. They want something to be at least recognizable. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want the same thing over and over again. They want to. They want to rhyme. Yeah, they want to rhyme. Yeah, and we were, we were getting yeah. getting to that, yeah, and I think that uh, that is the next part of this. Indeed, it is. Yeah, with the that great myth maker himself. Yeah, George Lucas, and uh, his story. Uh, or his... You mean his bad prose? I mean his... Well, that that is a thing. I mean, that doesn't <laughs> that really rhyme. Poetry. That's not exactly poetry. That's bad poetry. But I mean, whenever you're... You know, the kiss that never should have been given and yeah. uh, your heart's burning and things like that. and You know, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. What are you going to do? You know, there's one thing I learned from George Lucas. It seems if you have the high ground, you always win. That does seem that way. Unless you're Darth Maul. Oh, well, he yeah, couldn't have that, didn't he? He didn't win. Well, <laughs> he killed one. He technically killed one of them. But they were on level ground. Oh. That's true. Oh. Did he have the high ground on Obi-Wan? Yes. And then Obi-Wan jumped up and sliced him in half. So he was a successful Anakin. Obi-Wan is the high ground. That's, that's, that's the thing. Ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so... As you know, the, the words of George Lucas that have often been uttered on here before is that it's like poetry. It rhymes. And I think that there's more to this than meets the eye. I think there's a really good point here. And that is, sometimes you've got full rhymes, sometimes you've got half rhymes, sometimes you've got an A-B-A-B rhyme scheme, sometimes you've got an A-A-B-B. Sometimes you have an inverted story. That's true. Like where we start in one place and end up in another. Like it's, There's ring theory with the Star Wars people and this and yeah. that. And I'm not too big into it because I think mostly they're mostly a movie is a movie. 
I'd say that. I think that's fair. So Well, clearly you're not a film theorist. Yeah, yeah. No. But yes, I, I do feel like the inverted storytelling with things like... I was going to say the prequels, just because we have um, the victory of the first one. It's very much like A New Hope in many ways, in the fact that we meet the boy on Tatooine, we blow yeah. up the Death Star-ish thing, or the thing that is causing the imminent doom to the planet. Oh, that Shall thing, we yes. Say that thing. That thing. Yes, they rhyme. They so do rhyme. They rhyme very, yes. very closely. Whereas, in the original series, we end with the destruction of the Death Star, and the fall of the Emperor... The end quite clearly ends with the birth of Darth Vader, um, yeah. and you know the building of the Death Star, mm-hmm. as well as the ascension of the Emperor. Mm-hmm. And it's just—it's like poetry; they rhyme. It does. It really does. Yeah. Now, whether it's a good rhyme, is a different question entirely. If it uh, is too close of a word, if it almost yeah. rhymes, rhymes with the same word, yeah. which the sequel trilogy obviously does, they rhyme with all the same words, basically. Yeah. Well, basically. Well, well there, there's you know. There's the I, first. I would not say that they are as coherent as you know what I mean. The first stanza rhymes completely with the other stanzas, yes. almost a complete repetition. The other one is like free verse, and then the last one is you know just another copy off the other one. Brandon, we've showed you the scene from Anchorman Two: The I'm Blind. <laughs> <laughs> That's what came to mind while ago. Anyway, wait, should we go through it? No, 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 not right now. It? No, go no, on, no, no. Go not on. the point. So, That's not the point. It's funny. Going back to three act structure in general. Now, I feel like a very worthwhile conversation to have is three act structure within a movie because we're very quick to jump into examples like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and say, hey, look at this set of movies. This is the first act in the Star Wars story. Yeah. This is this. But going back to things like A New Hope, where you have a very clear establishment and what people feel like is a long first act, but really, it isn't as much. I don't know if that says... I think that says more about modern audiences than it does about anything else. It could be. Yeah. And then we get the building up to where the tension keeps increasing and increasing as stormtroopers come in. We're on the Death Star. And then we have our nice, fairly quick... I, I don't know if it's fairly quick, but it's well done, well paced, falling action. Or shall we say the entire last part of when they're doing all the Death Star stuff. Yeah. Blowing it up, not being inside it. Oh, That's like the, where they're flying the ships in. And yeah. You're... And yeah, they're flying the ships in, Luke's about to destroy the thing. It's The thing is, moments like that are really held by framing because we're given... I know that I think room to breathe is a very important thing. That's we're given true. that in a, in a minute school way by periods of silence. Yes. Like, we have, there are times when the ships are approaching in Star Wars when we have very little music. Uh-huh. Now, there are obviously times when we have a lot of music and ships are coming and things like that. And, you know, just being able to use music and sights and sounds to be able to shift the story in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, the musical score for the death of Gandalf yep. in Fellowship of the Ring. That, a very impactful score. Imagine if that were silent, though. I, it would not have the same impact. It would just be like, right. it would just... It would be too real, and it wouldn't be yeah. so real. You yeah. know, it's just yeah, it's just height, really. having something that would elevate that experience. And I think that's we could chalk a lot of that up to Narnia because a lot of the music does not seem that impactful. Mm-hmm. And if we just we add the right tracks here and there, and maybe mm-hmm. it's more serious here, more more light there, I think we could have. I think it would change a lot yeah. in my mind. I think somebody really could do a good fan edit of Narnia. Yeah. Because yeah. even just doing that, we could, we could you could really reframe the resurrection scene, mm-hmm. and maybe in the death scene, yeah, and the battles, because the, they're 
the thing is, being able to have triumphant moments means that you are actually having a triumph there. If you yeah. have the same triumphant music throughout, then you're not really getting anything new. Right. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Lord of the Rings was better than The Hobbit in this way, and that you have the triumphant scores when something actually triumphant happens, as opposed to when our heroes have a little minor victory over a minuscule foe. You yeah. have to build things yeah. right in that regard. And I think that's really topped off in, in a bad way because of how defeated the White Witch basically is by the end. When the final battle, yeah. you know, the Ice Kingdom has receded and things are clearly day. I think maybe you could do something like I think we talked about yeah. off the podcast, but mixing up things to make it more ambiguous, less certain ground, like maybe it's muddy as opposed yeah. to like this bright sunny day, cloudy, yeah. something like that. Um, and also, I because I know that Aslan, after he's resurrected, goes and does some stuff, you know, resurrecting people and stuff. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think I think maybe that final defeat of the White Witch should realign with him, like appearing again for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Just because, yeah, yeah, I think oh. that oh, it's, it's less of just finishing off the White Witch and more like he has broken his chains, he's resurrected, he's back. Death is defeated. Yes, that sort of thing. How does she actually die in the movie? He eats her. Wait, what? Yeah, it's not an on-screen. No, I mean he doesn't show her him mauling her. Does she? But, does she not die beforehand? No, I mean because we just see her on the ground. He's uh, he's bearing down on her, and we see his jaws chomp at the camera, and uh, she's yeah. dead. <laughs> Those, do you find her body? No, I mean, no. No, this is a kid's yeah. movie. We're not no, going to no. show a bald white witch. <laughs> but we still really could have had a lot better framing, like you said. We mentioned the weather. Yeah. And an example of that is Helm's Deep. Clearly okay. raining. Yep. It's clearly hopeless. Yes. yes, yes. They say it's hopeless so many times, though. <laughs> so I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. How and bad yeah, is it? I really hate when they re-bring in the point that you yeah, already it's understand. Like we already it's, like, know it's, hopeless. it's hopeless. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. But by the time we get to the battle, it's like no, it's not hopeless. It's actually raining. When Gandalf comes, there's literally light. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just that it's so simple. And you could have Aslan doing the same thing. Here's the thing, yeah. though. Narnie, Narnie did not need a big battle. No. That's, yeah. It, not in the same way. I don't even think in the book it's really that big of a battle. No. Well, here's the thing. Lord of the Rings, I think Helm's Deep is only like a few pages. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's not big. This, this, is, really... this is the nature of films. But then again, Lord of the Rings impacted Narnia in such a way that like, Lord of the Rings is big battles. We need big battles. Everybody needs big battles now. Because I see a quick Helm's Deep. It's literally, you have the part where Gimli uh, yeah. and Nicholas are fighting. It's not that desperate. They get, they get, I think Gimli is the one that gets kicked back like he falls back from the wall because they get separated and yeah. he rallies the men and they have that very nice they're coming up from the deep and finding their way to it yeah. and I'm pretty sure he breaks his axe if I remember correctly on like the last orc yeah so with boy. that we mentioned Chekhov's gun yeah what are some examples of actual objects or items being having a good delivery or a good setup or a good payoff the ring we can, okay there's that but I was thinking of something like um, Narseal because uh, think, think of the books. Narsil is reforged in the first book of Lord of the Rings in the books. Mm -hmm. Aragorn has no character development after that, really. Not really. He's all. basically, He's, I'm big I'm big king boy now. I'm big bad. It's like, uh, I'm a bit scary. Whereas whatever problems the movies had with introducing it and having to force the plot to make Elrond go back um, to Aragorn, 
Still, him getting the sword later on and then being the king, although what? you could argue Aragorn is way too whiny by the end of Return of the King. Doesn't he get his sword in Return of the King? Yes. Both early on, though? Um, no, he I don't get, think... It's before he goes to get the ghost army. He, no, he gets some... I believe the, the sword Elror, is... Elror and um, the other one... Elrohir? Elros and Elrohir? Or am I thinking of... Is that how you pronounce it? I always pronounced it Elror. Okay. And that, that's how my phone reads it whenever... I listened to it, but that could yeah, be just the I, I, I'm reading. not exactly sure. But yeah, they're the ones that um, bring the sword, right? In, in the, the books, yes. yeah, yeah. Because oh, the that would be that, if that's Elrond the case. Sons. That would be it's in the, um, the two towers, then, wouldn't it? It might be in the two. I thought it was in the that because that would be the great um, passage of the Great Company. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I could have sworn it was in Fellowship of the Ring when it was reforged. The point is that the object is actually treated as something significant, an object of failure for his past, hmm. and his past, you know, his ancestors, hmm. but is treated as an object for his success and given to him at the time of his greatest need in the movies, even though we have a forced plot point coming along with it with Arwen dying, which did not need to be there. And I think one example we can use is Luke's lightsaber, in the negative, Luke's lightsaber in the sequel trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it was built up. Very much so. And then, you know, we don't just want to, you know, trash on um, J.J. Abrams' day. I mean, that's that's fun. That is fun. Because, you know... You just get... Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like kind of a free ride. Yeah. Not everything <laughs> needs to have an explicit purpose. Then what happens is, if you don't, is... Yes, you've subverted expectations, but... Yeah. What was the Ow. actual point? Yeah, and he had every opportunity of threading. Like, well, yeah. well, yeah, for yeah. the most part, explain that. Because she rebuilds it. Like, yeah. she, it was broken. With everything, with Luke's lightsaber, mm -hmm. the way it wasn't delivered on. I mean, what what was actually significant about it in the end? Mm -hmm. no, yeah. no, I mean, nothing really. Mm -hmm. Even oh. though we hear, we see the vision, we see a lot of yeah. things that could have been something interesting, but just weren't. Yeah. I mean, the vision was... was yeah. Yeah, the vision bad. was so much opportunity to, because that pretty much could have set up the rest of the trilogy. And I mean, obviously, you've got the Ryan Johnson thing. Yeah, and which, uh, I I don't know how much he's to blame for anything when someone does a shameless. Um, I wouldn't call it an homage, just because the Force yeah. Awakens, all it does is it puts yeah. characters that we love back in their starting positions. It doesn't truly hand the torch yeah. off. That's you know? so true. It's a. If they wanted a reboot and not a sequel, in all honesty. That's yeah. what they were doing. I, they were shooting for a reboot, I think. I'm but, then one, but then but that cannot coexist with no. Ryan Johnson's vision. Right. I'm not saying his vision was bad. It's just nothing built to that. Yeah. And after it, it was subverted. Yeah. And I do think that it makes sense for what they did as far as where they put the original characters, since the original characters are not at the forefront. And I think that's the best way to start out something like that so yeah. that you can find them. Because I think that as the audience refines these characters in places it's that, that aren't where they left them, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> the, but yeah. here's the thing. The prequels do not do a tremendously good job of that either, especially Phantom Menace, in the sense that you would think that Obi-Wan would really be our grounding character in that. Right. But he doesn't have a big enough role compared to everything else going on right. to make us truly... Like, because who do you identify with in the Phantom Menace? Is the a good thing. question. I mean, you're maybe? supposed to. Uh, yeah, because we're all wise masters. You're basically a paragon of virtue type. <laughs> um, um, we're supposed to have Ray in the sequels, but I don't want to go on the Mary Sue thing. This let's just suffice to say, very little feels earned with her, right? And very yeah. very little feels earned 
overall. Now, we do have Anakin in some capacity in, by the time we get to Attack of the Clones, but the execution is not well done enough to make a lot of people compelled. Now, right. by Revenge of the Sith, I really think we have that. The acting takes a tremendous step up, especially with Hayden Christensen's his physical showing, sure. what he shows. Yeah. And, and that really helps, and we, and we get that. But when it came to actually having a character that would have been there with us, yeah. it would have been our point of view character throughout, mm -hmm. um, we're not given that in the prequels. Mm -hmm. I mean, we... Because Phantom Menace is like, it's almost like an anthology movie. You know, mm -hmm. which doesn't make it bad, but it's going to be connecting to the bigger part of the, of the, of the trilogy yeah. is the thing. Now, originals, point of view, perspective, Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Very clear. That's a, I think this is a, one of the biggest strengths we have. We have a clear protagonist with clear struggles, failings, goals, all that stuff. And the conflict, as much as George Lucas would like to reinterpret the story, is built around Luke. In the original series. I, I don't really think you can get around that. But, you know, yeah. it's one of those things. Because yeah. we describes the in, we describes the original series as like the tragedy of Darth Vader in this, in this one interview, I think. Yeah. It's like, um, have you read the script, George? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, not saying I know it better than you. I'd never do that. But it's just, <laughs> you realize that these things are released in time. You yeah. can't change that. Yeah. You know, it's just... That, that's the main thing. And, you know, yeah. yeah, there's that Da Vinci quote about art is never finished, only abandoned, and George Lucas honestly believes that like, yeah. very, very strongly, <laughs> because he's constantly reinterpreting his own work. That might be a fun episode. Is um, is each like rendering an artwork unto itself, and uh, I think that that could be fun, especially when the interpretation becomes an art into itself, especially whenever the artist himself does it. Because that could be interesting. Because, you know, like, I, I'll go back to something that I've done. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think sometimes I know it better than I originally did. Not saying that George particularly has <laughs> learned better than it is the tragedy of Vader. Because I think sometimes he just says things. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. George. I think, I think it's true, though. <laughs> every author has a, a very um, paternal view of their... Yeah, of, of their characters at least. Yeah. Maybe not their stories in the way they told them. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the, a lot of times the author looks back at his original work with some level of distaste. Okay. And you, you could view the prequels as trying to fix that in all the weirdest ways, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I. Yeah. It's just I also nice. get. Sometimes, whenever you're. I, I suppose. At least one theory as far as when you're interviewing an artist like George Lucas or someone. I think that there are always going to be things that uh, like an artist would like you to ask them, but they yeah. never like mm -hmm. actually expound, get to expound upon. So maybe whenever they're actually like elaborating on it, things come across as like there's not a real cohesive whole that mm -hmm. uh, because it's not one sitting, one opportunity to just explain bound like basically this is all that I was thinking whenever I was creating this thing and uh, you know George Lucas the self uh, the, the, the the single interview documentary setting <laughs> yeah and there's a lot of things he'd like to say about the story yeah um, just so he could frame how we watch the story <laughs> yeah it's like whereas the other interviews would just say watch the movie yeah it's like just yeah. watch the movie uh -huh. like, that, I think that's the best approach you can take to it yeah and we, we can save analysis for later yeah, I don't want you trying. If, if I need some sort of framing to make the movie that much better, 
Yeah. I, I, I don't really don't really like that. That is yeah. true. Yeah. It's kind of like sometimes I will be find myself interested in a particular movie and like well <clears throat> so like I, I I've been meaning to watch this movie called The Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a Russian filmmaker, it's a sci-fi thing. It's all in Russian. It's very slow paced. Mm-hmm. I have not I've only started watching it and basically I just have listened to a lot of people expound upon the beauty of it and the meaning and things like that. And sometimes I wonder, well, if I wasn't going into this movie with this expectation, yeah, that it was going to be great, maybe I would find it a slow and dull movie too. But yeah. <laughs> like some people would, uh, because I mean, clearly it's not going to be for everyone. Anyway, it, it's yeah, it's interesting. It's all in Russian. Yes, that's I cool. mean he's a Russian filmmaker. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. no, that's cool. And, though. I, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm interested. Do they do like dubs for you? So yeah, you understand what's being. Well, I don't know if they do like voice dub. So, Brandon, when it comes to objects that are built up well in you know cinema and all that sort of stuff, what would you say? Would you say that the Sword of Gryffindor, the Harry Potter series, well, in the movies, it's not built up at all by the time Neville actually gets to the point. It's one of those. It's one of those things. Where it's like, it seems like in the Harry Potter movie series, there wasn't an underlying plot at first. Yeah. You're still enjoying the movies. As just, that's the way it seems to me. Well, I, and that's the way it seems like when you try and actually view Star Wars as a saga, <laughs> that's, that's the way it seems I, too. I'll say, I think in Harry Potter, there's, in the books, it's well done. Yeah. Like, it is built up really well. It's got the made that even plays significantly into it. Yes. She does an excellent job in the books. But the introduction in, um, but the reintroduction, shall we say, of it in Deathly Hollows too. Well um, yeah, by the time we get to Neville, even in the books, I've heard. Um, yeah, he just pulls it out of the Sorting Hat, which is what Harry does in Chamber of Secrets. Like yes, Nagini. No, yeah, Nagini is her name. Okay. Yeah, the thing, the other thing that she tried building up, sort of, in the last book was the other one. That was yeah. like sort of supposed to be the like, oh, it's this really cool thing. It's like he gets it for 10 seconds, yeah. fixes his wand, and throws it away. It's like, well, that was a build yeah. up for nothing. So w- with all that, I think we can say that there are big problems if you introduce the the Chekhov's gun too early. Yeah. And there are even bigger problems if you introduce it too late. Well, yeah, because like, <laughs> I guess the big thing with the Sword of Gryffindor is you read about it in Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. It's mentioned here and there throughout some of the other books, I think Half-Blood Prince. And it's like mentioned in passing in some of the other books, like Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. But it has no role apart from in Applet Prince, you are led to believe that Dumbledore destroys yeah. the ring Horcrux with it, which he does. I think the real question is how can you introduce it and not overdo it, but also in such a way that your audience will remember? Because here's the thing I, I did like the introduction of Anduril in um, the Lord of the Rings movies, mm-hmm. but that's a lot because of the framing, because the music, the this, the that, the background, everything. That's what a movie is. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have the story without all that other stuff. Yeah, just because just read a book. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But the thing is, we're only we're introduced to Narsil. We're not told its name. We're just told that he has a sword. We're shown the events around the sword in Fellowship of the Ring. Yep. We are then shown the actual sword, and it's connected to Aragorn in a way that it is connected to his failings. Yeah. Then after we've seen Aragorn go through a lot. It is reforged in his moment of I wouldn't say greatest need, but it's, that's what that's what they're sure they're that's what they would like you to think. That's what they're <laughs> to think. And then it's given to him, and he becomes the king he needs to be within the course of the next whatever hour and twenty minutes, forty minutes, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And 
character development. Yeah. And, and you get then, a new sword. Yeah, yeah. And then he commands the armies of the dead. I think that introduction of the sword in the movie is done well. Yeah. The plot point that gets it there is not. Is that why he needs it, right? Isn't that in the books too? Doesn't actually, in the movies. No, I'm saying okay. in the books too. Like, I, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't remember what he needed. He needed something of another to command them because it's like, your debt must be repaid. It's like, I, yeah. All that stuff. But I feel like introducing the significance of the object means that we don't need to talk about it constantly. <laughs> like, like, Luke's, like Luke's lightsaber. Uh-huh. Like, think about how many times it's actually mentioned in The Force Awakens. Do you remember? Like, yes, Masconada. Oh my goodness. Why is this mentioned so much? Yeah. Um, and it's just... Yeah. Maybe... Uh, isn't it... We could just introduce... We could have like a... Um, almost like a flashback to a CGI version of Luke doing something. Yeah. And then basically showing how it was lost. Mm-hmm. Like in... I wouldn't say basically the opening scene of the movie after the title scroll, and then we could have provided we actually had an overall story. We could have made, <laughs> we could have made that a little bit more impactful when it's introduced, and yeah. then not really touch it much uh-huh. apart oh, from the end. Too. How about in a movie like you know, like how there's like the miniature bads, right? Yeah. Like the. Um, oh the, yes. I think definitely. you know what I'm going to hint at. Um, so and um. I think it is Return of the King where the like captain of the Mill Skull gets stabbed. Yes, the Witch King of Angle. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't remember it well in the movie. I remember it really well in the book and it was well done. Well that's because the Battle of Minas Tirith is so different. Um mm-hmm. when it comes to what the Witch King does there. Well, because in the book he lands and then he's like, You should not interrupt it while it's feeding. Yeah. Because the bird's eating the uh, the bird's eating the yeah, horse. The beast is- well, even in the movie, I think he says it is foolish to stand between the Nazgul and his prey. And then she cuts off the head of the beast as it's trying to eat the horse they had and was on. Yeah, snow, whatever but, it is. It's yeah. Snow, flake, or... Is it, I'm, not, so, the, I'm not the biggest fan of the outside battle um, when it comes to Pelennor Fields, apart from the charge of the Rohirrim, the right of the Rohirrim. Mm-hmm. Well, after that, it kind of just seemed weird to me. And it yeah. seems like... Have you ever seen in the movie where there's like all these orcs and there's just the guy sliding them, decapitating all of them, just um, like slaughtering them? In the Hobbit movies, definitely, yes. Uh, I feel like there's but Legolas, actual... I feel like they're, yeah, I feel like I know what you're talking about. There is a scene but where with, he's... But with all that, to, to get back to, to oh, this just a little bit, when it comes to actually building up objects and all that stuff, introducing the history of an object, having our hero encounter it, and then not mentioning it. <laughs> okay. I feel like that's I don't know maybe I'm wrong I feel like that's a good strategy yeah um, and so again I think as far as bringing in Knives Out is a great example of these sorts of things there's a there's a thing and Brandon you may remember with uh, the New York Times article I think it was within the story about uh, the main detective Benoit Blanc so basically, it's just mentioned at the very beginning that uh, a couple of the characters, one, one read a tweet about the article, the other one read the article, uh, and eventually you get into a, the, the story of um, who hired the detective and uh, how, how they were also inspired by, by that article. It, it, it all comes around, and I think whenever you do something in a nonlinear way, uh, you get the added benefit of connecting the story by by recognizing to the audience, clearly you guys don't know what's going on. Oh yeah. But a, a, as you go along, then you mix in the scenes of the past, and they connect based on theme and yes. what's happening, and you get that payoff. Even though you know some of these things that have already happened happen simultaneously, 
when they're revealed, when the added significance of them are revealed, then you get that satisfaction, the answer to the question that each of these beginning, you know, oddities are, are kind of brought in. Um, you know, there's a whole thing with knives in the story. And <laughs> knives out. Well, yes, and uh, it all, uh, the, the, the climax centers on knives. What, uh, what happens in the story to, you know, the murder victim involves knives. Yes. Uh, which hints the name, but anyway, um, it it all it all comes around, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. And what's what's most fascinating is that you don't wait that long to understand what happened with the murder, and then it becomes a point of view where you're trying to avoid uh, avoid being caught with the individual, uh, and that that adds a whole other level to the typical murder mystery. And so, yeah. I think you can also especially if you're working in a genre piece, kind of work through the usual means that the genre allows for. Yeah. And so sometimes that adds its own weight and benefit into when you're working out It was pieces. a well-done movie. It was definitely a well-done movie. Weapons and their imagery. Chekhov's gun, right? <laughs> the weapon imagery is just so... It's, it's strong. So yes. It's passed on from... Yeah. The, yeah, we, we get it in the book Arag- Aragon um, with the sword that was... I believe Brahms, I believe the sword belonged to Brahm and all that stuff. Yeah. Just, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. I, mean, I was going to say, for, have you ever noticed actually 90% of the objects are literally weapons that people focus on? Yeah. Sting. Why do you think that, do you think we that see is? We see Sting in Lord of the Rings, another sword, of course. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like a long knife, yeah. right? Because it's more of like it's a, a It's a sword. Like, yeah. you know how a gladius is a sword, even though it can be even the Pompeian variety is short. It's still, is it like a short sword? Of music? Yeah, it's a short sword. But yeah, swords as something, and we see the payoff when, there's obvious payoff when they kill their enemies, you know, it's like... <laughs> so I look at know. this, I can defend my, what about the coat of Mithril? Yep, payoff right there, but yeah. it, there is payoff right there, mostly in the immediate sense. We don't really see much from that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, like, We see, it's introduced in Fellowship, and I don't think enough exactly. time passes to where we kind of forget about it by the time we spent however long it was in Moria get stabbed, nothing happens. And but there's like, so many fake-out deaths for Frodo that yeah, I, it's, yeah, very, yeah. it's very hard for me to feel too compelled. My favorite thing is Aragorn do, just grabs yeah. him. He's, yeah. like, he's like, we'll get you out. He's like, I wonder if all yeah. Hobbits... But of all the crazy thing. stuff that happens there, it is easy to forget that Frodo had the Mithril on. Oh, yeah. It really no, no. is. And that's that's one of the things with the story building. Because we haven't been completely reminded about it over and over again. It's just introduced once and say, this can save your life, boy. It's like, <laughs> it definitely and then it does. Stuff. It's like, well, yeah. It's like That's a payoff right there. Yeah, and that's, then it, that's it, a little payoff. It that's comes what I love off, about that movie. I think it comes back in Return of the King, movies. right? Because doesn't the... It does. It gets it? stolen. Yeah. But it doesn't true. deflect any blows. No, no. It's, it's just like, used if to be like, was wearing the mithril, how was um, Shelob able to pierce him with the thing? I understood as it, it was yeah. worn his neck above the armor. Yeah. Because I that's think... Not, it shows... The, the movie shows the stomach, basically. Oh, does she stab him? Yeah. Because I think in the book it is more of in the neck. Yeah. I think I think she stabbed him like right above it. In any, in any case, the point is objects matter. Mm-hmm. We need some. In every epic tale, we generally have really epic objects. That's true. King Arthur, um, we have his sword. Uh-huh. I think Beowulf has a sword that he finds at the bottom of the lake. I think, is it just swords? Yeah. Swords, are pretty great. Swords, swords are pretty great. Swords or, I agree. in some cases, dragons. In like, so like Game of Thrones, dragons I mean, is the object that's used. I yeah. need to get me some. 
Or... Yeah, swords. <laughs> swords and their role in fantasy is just. It's like the number one thing that's yeah. important. People it's say, a shame that they don't have a bigger I'm role either. in real life. I mean, people, people say people say Dungeons and Dragons. What they meant to say is Dungeons and Swords. Basically. Or swords and sorcery. Right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's yeah. That's a whole genre. Yeah, which is nice. I mean, I think so. So um, yeah. So the mithril thing started getting hell right at the beginning. Yeah. This weapon is your life. Wow, it's hitting right now. It's like, uh, <laughs> uh, it really is. There, it's always their weapons too that they refer like you know. It's like you can have my axe, my bow, my sword. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's I think mm-hmm. thematically it's done well, but it gets kind of cartoonish by the yeah, time it's we like, get to it's like everything after axe. Fellowship of the Ring. The action in a lot of places gets so much more cartoonish, which is why everyone wonders, why is your favorite Fellowship of the Ring? It's the, it's the most coherent. Um, yeah. What do you want me to say? It's like, like just yeah. gangs have ass. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what? Yeah. It's also my favorite movie of all time, which is why I actually know the references from it as opposed to using any other example. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that you can really get into a great teleology of it when everything yeah. works. Yeah. Everything has that purpose. You know, that... The, the fires raise into the heavens and the rocks fall because that's where they want to be. <laughs> yeah. As the old philosophers had said. Yeah. Back in the glory days. Yeah. You know what my favorite thing is? Um, I know it's in The Hobbit. I don't know if it's actually in the movies. I haven't listened to all the Hobbit movies, but you know like when they're going into the cave with the Goblin King? Yes. Before they get captured, he uses the lightning spell to kill some of them and disappear. Yeah. Gandalf? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that at his introduction, I believe it was similar to the way it was done in the books. He shoots up a beam of light that basically scares the crap out of all of them, mm-hmm. and then he says, "Take up your arms, fight!" And like, or something like that. And then they, yeah, yeah. I remember the Scooby Doo movie with the Digga Goblin King. That was a whole different thing, though. It, yeah. Do you remember that one? Uh, no, I know I do not. That one, That's another one of those where the monsters are real. Oh, is that the one of the newer ones? It's not ones? the zombie island. <clears throat> no, no, well, the, it's older than you'd think. That one's It was creepy. like oh, oh, five, you know, in the in the aughts. Was it after uh, Cyberchase? Oh, I don't know. It probably was. Cyberchase, I think, was too. I mean, but the, those are very those are differently produced things. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're, you're talking about the. I one mean, maybe tins. It is, might be the tins. Is Scrappy in it? Is he no. Is it the other one that's? It revolves around, around them. Trying to get a hold of the Goblin King's scepter, which has magical powers, and, oh, a, I don't remember this and a deadbeat magician wants a hold of it so he can be a real magician. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, there's also uh, uh, swing revival vibes going on with the goblins. There's a whole swing thing going on, bringing yeah. you back to the big bad voodoo days, big bad voodoo daddy days of swing in the nineties. That's that, the best good. part of the nineties. I kid. Yeah. I, I don't really care for swing revival. The witch's ghost man was really. That was a spooky one. That, one that was, was a spooky, spooky movie. movie. It has the weird pumpkin monster things. That's so, true. There was and a the ghost witch thing. And, and the, the zombie witch. island. Zombie yeah. island actually is probably the scariest Scooby Doo movie. That's, That's the one with the cat creatures, right? And Captain Morgan yep. and all them. Yep. And it has the one maybe cat creature or werewolf. I don't know what the guy actually is. Yeah, he's probably a cat too. I think he is. He was he's a cat. Yeah, he was a cat. They were all cats. Were they out there cats? Yeah, that was their curse. I think. Yeah. Well, anyway. they wanted revenge. <laughs> See, revenge just turns you into a cat person, it seems. That's true. Creature. That's the problem. Because they wanted revenge on all the pirates. Don't be a cat person. Yeah, don't be a cat person. Be, 
Love your life. Yeah, love it. No, no revenge, please. I'm cats. kidding. Cats are great. Well, I mean, yeah. but well, not a cat person. Being a cat person. That's bad. Either a defining your whole identity around it, and b being a literal cat person. That's bad. Especially Actually, maybe have, rearrange those. I think one of those is to, worse than the other. Especially when you have to drink life out of people to keep on surviving. They, that's true. They do they, do that, don't they? I think so. I think and that's where the zombies come from. Um. Yes, I think it is their victims resurrected. Ooh. Is how I, I need to rewatch this movie. They made a movie that was returned to Zombie Island. I don't know how that works. They made another one? That seems like a shameless cash grab. But Why wouldn't they make another? They're all shameless dead. Shameless cash grab. They're all dead. And all the, the zombie... I'm sorry to say that I think that Scooby-Doo is sold out or something with all these yeah. direct-to-video no. DVD movies. I mean, doesn't the, ghost, doesn't the ghost thing even thank them for freed all of them? Uh, yeah. They do. Cute. They were grateful. The grateful dead. Yeah, the, the one was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a, so, that's a thing to say. Yeah. So <laughs> They're happy to be dead. Yeah, they are happy to be dead. Finally. They want to be free. They want to be free and they got free. And then there's the one detective guy that doesn't really get brought up ever again, I'm pretty sure, in any other movie. It happens. So, there's okay. also that movie where the aliens are real, the Roswell one. Oh, the one where it's the two, it's Crystal and what's her name? Yeah, girl. he's got the crush on the girl and, and it's, it's an alien alien. girl. Well, Scooby-Doo's got a crush on the Well, Scooby-Doo is an alien, so it's okay. What? No, they made him in, Yeah, they've made him into an alien now. He's part of what? a race called the Anazazi. I don't believe that. That is canon now. That's not canon. That's canon now. Not if it's I deny it. Well, you're denying it's not You and your effects. book of Enoch level credibility over there. Oh, here. man, no. I just say what the people that create Scooby-Doo have said. Like, that's, that's, that's like, that's, whoa, whoa, that's heretical. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, hold yeah, on. Yeah. Let's hold on just a little bit. What if parts of it are cited in documents you do accept? That's the real question. There is the not, not, well, okay. Bart and Jude. And then Ooh. in the Apostolic Fathers with Man, the Epistle of Barnabas. Who Dude. cares about that? I know, I, but it's part of the Apost Apostolic Fathers, so what do you Focus do? It's part of the collection, but there was a lot of stuff that was part of the Athanasian Library, the modern scholars say spurious, and I was like, well, yeah. um, I hate to disagree with you here, but Clearly there's, there's not something a second, called history. Well, well, second letter of Clement clearly is not Clement's. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. <laughs> what? No, this is agreed upon. There's only one of A lot of things are agreed upon, but we don't need to talk about it. But that's so, not modern so, Ladies and gentlemen, this thank you for tuning in for Remember? this week. We've had this whole... I am your hey, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut up. Yeah. Yeah. Quit running over me. Suffice to say, I'm sure we could all find a lot of different things in the past that would... Um, point to the fact that there have been many different perspectives in history. I and mentioned just something that was doubted. I mentioned just once that the first and second Clement, and you were like, there's only one epistle of Clement. You said that. That's a yeah, I mouth. say many things. And not all of them you believe. <laughs> I'm an unreliable narrator. That's my, that's my storytelling yeah, strategy. Cask of Amontillado in this, man. All that to say, Scooby-Doo's not an alien. I don't care. I think yeah. that's the point. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the big... Um, it does sort of ruin it if you I'm think I'm not the biggest Scooby-Doo fan. Second Clement was that. written by an alien. Well, that is from a certain point of view. <laughs> uh, if that's what the guys like on Sundays, then maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Uh, um, yeah. Lastly, I thought about, uh, at least briefly discussing before we go, talking about the monomyth Ooh. and thoughts about... The usefulness of that. I've been reading, uh, or rather listening to, 
Joseph Campbell's famous work, A Hero, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's interesting because it uh, it analyzes obviously the myths, and it just kind of like attempts to bust them open. And sure, that what he's bringing out of it is kind of just subjective. Uh, like he's just kind of like is like oh and this clearly means this on the inside and it's like blah 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 here's here's this and so point being is that I he kind of is in this Jungian tradition in a way I think that's connected to that in which the archetypes are there and searching for these things um, but yeah I think that the hero's journey is an interesting thing and clearly has influenced so many of what uh, we take Love part of uh, clearly with uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and things yeah. like that um, do you think it's still a useful tool to to tell the story to tell the story yeah. I suppose it could be if everyone weren't entirely interested in deconstructing everything I um, mean maybe <laughs> I think at certain levels of deconstruction can be well done but the problem is once you deconstruct anything what are you actually left with well that's, that's true I mean but, uh, I mean, it, I guess it would be just a matter of how repetitive we're seeing things or yeah, yeah. whether things are too common, too familiar to us. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say when things get to that, but I guess we'll know it when we see it, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah that's kind of the, kind of like the Supreme Court said of a certain topic. But anyway, that's a whole nother. Yeah, uh, that's that's a whole another topic. <laughs> Rabbit hole. Um, whenever it comes to obscenity. I'll just like to say that um, Second Clement is far more authentic than any Supreme Court opinion ever written. Uh, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah. But I truly um, believe. So, yeah. Whenever you get into interpretation in Supreme Court opinions, it's certainly a, a hermeneutical There's wonderland. much more continuity between First and Second Clement than any... <laughs> Yeah, okay. That, that, yeah. Um, that's, so, that's all we need. Yeah. Do we have a I mean, that's fairly... Both of those things are fairly niche between people that read the Apostolic Fathers and people and who, who read Supreme Court Opinions. Unfortunately, we are both. But, uh, I mean, maybe fortunately. I guess it depends. Uh, who knows. Yeah. Uh, so. Last question. How important are the rules in a great story? What's the rule for when we can break a rule? That's two questions, technically, but... Like, how do you effectively break the rule? Yeah, how do you break a rule? How do you know you can break a rule? Can you just I guess break a rule? You, you theoretically can. Pulp Fiction didn't tell it in order, and it no. still is acclaimed. Well, yeah. Um, maybe it's... If you make a compelling story that doesn't need to be, you know, just linear, it can be, like, divided up and still tell a compelling story, I guess that's a way of breaking mm -hmm. the rule. Because you're telling a story that's not linear, that's actually effectively getting your points across. Or as close to effectively, I mean, I don't think Pulp Fiction really has a point, but, like I said earlier, that is a tasty burger. I would say the answer is mystery, mm. overall. Just because we can subvert many things by just mystery. Who truly knows the real interpretation of a prophecy? Mm. And that's we, true. We, can, we see that in, in the Scottish play. We see mm. that in many different things, and just everything like that. Like we have the the man being killed by the woman because no man could kill him, or he wasn't born of his mother's womb, so to speak, because he's a C-section or whatever. Yeah. However mm -hmm. you want to parse it, and creating a mystery around that is just 
I feel like there really is a really good way to do that. Now, an example I believe did not do that so well is Obi-Wan's explanation of Darth Vader um, and uh, uh, Darth Vader killed your father, that, yeah. that sort of thing. It's, it's, not, really it's not really... If he had said that, if we had just had a bit more of a mysterious line, yeah. um, uh, instead of Darth Vader betrayed and murdered your father, yeah. as so Darth Vader destroyed your father even. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Destroy would be a better word or for it. Darth Vader consumed your father. Yeah. Darth Vader... Um, is your father that would have been good too <laughs> that would have been good yeah. out there right that's at least truthful <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah it's like, and, and then he builds like since I reinterpreted this in such a way what I told you was indeed true <laughs> you what, you don't even need to add that yeah that's like okay grandpa it's like, <laughs> that would have been if you would have been like Darth Vader is oh by mom. the way he's your dad <laughs> oh I hope he. I hope the new show about Obi Wan gets into the fact that he became a freaking relativist late in life. Just the the. He really. It's just one little lie. I mean, there. I mean, he, he's like from a certain point of view that I think that there's. Only do with one thing. There's a lot of stuff going on. He doesn't okay. say that Leia's his sister until a while on, which I mean. Yeah, he holds that back a little bit. Yeah. That one's not selective out. guy there. Yeah. I think we can chalk it up to him being more selective in what he tells people rather than him being actually more morally relative. Because yeah. he's very selective with what he tells Luke when it comes to his father. So he's like, yes. like very selective about the other stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, I think this guy's just not a yeah. good guy sometimes. I think that's the be- the, the mm-hmm. through line here. He definitely has the eccentric shaman thing going on. He does. Which is a, a big archetype that you You must find. be Ben Kenobi. Yeah. So, yes. It's not a name I've heard. Could about. you imagine? I, still, I think it would be even better than this party's over, just based when you show it up. But so, what would you say about the rules in Breaking? I think you've got to be precise. Mm. No, yeah, I said mystery. You're saying precision. I get that. You. I think we mean similar things. Yeah, in yeah. that you need to know very specifically what you want to break yes. and uh, how yeah. you're going to make it known that you're breaking it. Yeah, you have to think about it before time. Would yeah. You say, uh, Deadpool breaking the like fourth wall where he actively talks to you is breaking the rules to an extent. I mean, yeah, doing it sort of effectively. That, that's a that's a t- that's a type of presentation. It is a there, technique. So. Yeah. It is a technique. I okay. don't know. Um, I've also never seen Deadpool, so that's true. He does a. There's parts of it where he does actively talk to the audience, um, which is breaking the fourth wall, which yeah. is sort of cool. But also, it's Ryan Reynolds, so I mean, he's pretty cool. Let's face it. Um. Yeah, I think that it's kind of just a matter of also you can't break all the rules at once. Yeah, because mm-hmm. that's just that's not how these things work. No. Yes, the moment your story can even be accused of being bizarro is um, <laughs> yeah you've messed up. Uh huh. Because uh, I think that uh, it is true what they have said that art is defined by its limitations. I think yes. Chesterton said something and along those lines. I think especially when we have magic systems ones that are very well thought out like in Avatar by Sarabender and things like that to have a rule actually be broken something needs to be established and needs to be achieved through great effort because yes earthbenders can bend earth but couldn't have been, been metal eventually the answer is yes but it is through a deep level of study and things that we not so study but great desperation and need that we get to that point mm-hmm. and if you just had someone saying well technically a metal is earth. I know no one's ever bended it before, but I'll give it a try. And just it's like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, that, that's mm-hmm. not how it works. It's not how it works. 
you don't just you just discover something and start doing it fluently. It's like no, this takes this takes some research. It takes something, you know. Yeah. And it's like and it's like you have to be very you do have to be very precise with it. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's well done. And I feel like blood bending is not as well done. No, it's not. You bend the blood. Is it only because water bend? Yeah, only done in full moon, which explains why people really hadn't discovered it in the same way. But it's like mm, it's not really. There's not that many blood benders. Sounds kind of gross. You have to be number one, a really powerful water bender. Two, you have to be full moon. Three, all that stuff. It's like okay. That sounds like sophistry to me. Well, there's not that many. That's a handy word. I'm gonna start using more and more. Is there not that many bloodbenders? If I remember correctly, no. There's a handful. No, it's just it's not even. I don't even like that episode. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't think you need it. Um, but yeah, precision. That definitely on a second consideration that that's a very mm-hmm. good precision. precision knowing true. where you're going. Yeah. And then everything is also awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> <laughs> Never yeah, mind. We're bringing that back. I'll stop. <laughs> we're bringing that right back. It's all well, I, I mentioned breaking the rules and sophistry, so it. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, well, with that. Do we have any final questions? <laughs> is our final question for the day? I believe the real question is who is more the fool? The, the, the school of legal philosophy or the fool that follows it? That is a good question. That is a decent question. And I think that we'll leave the audience to ruminate on that yes. yeah. deep and penetrating question. Post it in the comment section or whatever. We... And uh, until then, I'm going to remind everybody uh, on behalf of Adam, Brandon, and not Nathan uh, to... Find yourself, know yourself, love yourself, and get over yourself. Bye, everybody.